Well, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church. And once again, it's my glorious privilege to bring God's Word to you. Well, we are still in the book of Joshua, so turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. We'll be starting in verse 13. This uh, sermon series that we're doing is basically a walk through the book of Joshua, as I mentioned last week. Of course, we're not going to hit every chapter. We just kind of uh, hit the highlights, but hopefully the Lord will use that to both edify all of us as, as well as to exalt His Son. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about a man known as the last Viking king. His name was Harold Sigurdsson. He ruled Norway during the 11th century. And Harold was a brilliant military strategist and soldier who was known for his unconventional methods. Uh, for instance, at one point, he was leading an army against a city and was uh, finding a lack of success. So he uh, pretended that he was falling ill and had died, and he sent an envoy into the city to offer the enemy the honor of, or the boasting rights of being his burial place. The enemy accepted, uh, thinking it would be a nice deterrent for anyone else who might want to besiege them, and apparently having never read the story of the Trojan horse. <laughs> so as the uh, group of soldiers pretending to mourn carried a coffin with Harold in it into the city, then they opened the coffin, Harold popped out, and they began attacking the city from within. Probably his most notorious act of unconventional methods was uh, when he was besieging another city. Uh, that was the thing you did back then. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a soldier, you besiege cities. And uh, he didn't feel like he had the manpower for a long, protracted siege, so he's trying to come up with a way to speed things along. I guess his schedule <laughs> was filling up. And uh, this city, its walls were, were very formidable. They weren't able to scale the walls. And uh, so he was trying to think of a different way to approach this. And he noticed, as they observed the city day after day, that the birds that lived in the city would leave the city during the day and go out into the countryside to gather food and then return to their, to their nests in the evening. So he waited for the birds to come out, as they did every day, and he ordered his men to capture as many of these birds as they could. And having done so, captured a great number of them. They then tied wood chips to their legs and released them after setting those wood chips on fire. The hapless birds, of course, returned, undoubtedly somewhat frightened, uh, returned to their nests, and that set the city on fire, and Harold was able to conquer the city and the ensuing mayhem. Now, the reason I bring up Harold is because, <clears throat> because he was known for these strange, unexpected, unconventional methods of going about war. And as you guys know from the book of Joshua, chapter 6, in their battle against Jericho, the nation of Israel followed a very unconventional, unorthodox way of attacking Jericho. Now, of course, Harold's ideas, you could see a direct connection between what he did and attacking the cities that he was attacking, whereas in Israel's case, there was actually no natural connection between what they were doing and what would happen to the city, but there was a supernatural connection, so that's why it was a wise course of action. Okay, so we're in Joshua 5, starting at verse 13. I'll just catch you up to speed as I do every week. Recall that the nation of Israel was uh, camped on the... <laughs> now I'm self-conscious about directions. Uh, ever since I made fun of Megan Ash about that 
They were camped on the east side of the Jordan River, and they crossed over the west to the west side of the Jordan River, which is where the Promised Land was, and they crossed over by means of God miraculously stopping the Jordan River. He just he literally paused the river, and the water just piled up in a heap and allowed them to walk across on the riverbed. Once they were camped in the Promised Land, then God had them to rededicate themselves, renewing themselves in their covenant by circumcising all the men of the nation that had not been circumcised since they had left Egypt. And then after that, the nation of Israel, showing that their hearts were sincere in obedience toward the Lord, set aside time to observe the Passover because the time for the Passover feast had come. So now they are camped at a place called Gilgal, which is a few miles from Jericho. And Jericho is really their first obstacle that's, that's standing between them and conquering the promised land. They have to start somewhere, and Jericho is the first place that they're going to encounter. Jericho, <clears throat> excuse me, Jericho was, uh, as Grant mentioned, who apparently did uh, some good research on Jericho. Where is Grant, by the way? Good job on that. I lost him. Is he waving? At I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Well done there. Uh, it's estimated that Jericho was a city covering about 12 acres, and based on the population density of cities back then, they can conclude that Jericho was a city of about 2,000 people. Now, you will recall me mentioning last week that Israel was a nation of 2 to 3 million people at this time. So you may be wondering, why would a town of 2,000 people have any possible hope of standing against an oncoming horde of millions? Well, in my further research this past week, I, I think I have concluded that it is more likely that Israel was composed of tens of thousands of people rather than millions of people, and I'll uh, explain a little bit why that is. The population estimate that we get for Israel being two to three million is based upon the census of fighting men from Numbers chapter 1. Uh, Moses, under the Lord's direction, said, let's count all the men that we have 20 years old and up. They can go to war. And the, the end of Numbers 1 says that there were 603,550 men who were qualified to be part of Israel's army. So if that's the number of 20-year-old healthy men, then you can extrapolate and say that the total population had to be at least 2 million, possibly 3 or 4 million. However, I discovered that the word that is translated as thousands in that passage could also be translated as families. So it is possible that instead of saying that there were this many soldiers, they were saying that there were 598 families with an available manpower of 5,550 soldiers, and scribes combined the two numbers to come up with this 603,550 number. Now, an army the size of 5,000 fits a lot better with the narrative in Joshua as well as in Judges. This would, it would make sense then if you were a walled city of a couple thousand people that you would have very good hopes of holding off an army of a few thousand. Now, that translation, uh, we'll say, doesn't solve all the difficulties that we get into with the numbers. Uh, but if you're interested, uh, you can just email me and I can send you the articles that I read that help me think through that. And if you still conclude, well, I still think there were several million people. Well, that's okay, too. That is, that is a viable conclusion. Okay, so here we are. Israel's renewed in their covenant with God. They're camping in the promised land. They're looking a few miles away to, to attacking Jericho. They're ready. But the first thing that happens is that the commander of the Lord appears. Commander of the Lord's army. By the way, okay, yes. They, they, on my screen down here, the, uh, one of the words is cut off. I was just checking to see if that was the case for you guys. 
The commander of the Lord's army shows up. So look with me at verses 13 to 15 of Joshua chapter 5. It says this, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So as I mentioned, Israel is camped several miles from Jericho, and as they're planning to attack, Joshua decides that he's going to get a closer look at the city to probably formulate battle plans. So he's probably standing on a hill, at least within eyesight of Jericho, walking around, meditating on what to do next. And then suddenly in front of him appears this man with his sword drawn. Well, of course, Joshua's in enemy territory, so he's startled and frightened all at the same time. And so he asks this man, okay, wait a second, are you... Are you joining my army, or are you part of Jericho's army? And the first thing that this mystery man says to him is, No, no, I'm, I'm not here to join your army or uh, Jericho's army, Joshua. As a matter of fact, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I have my own army, far more powerful than any army that you could come up with. And now I have come. And Joshua rightly responds by falling on his face and worshiping this being. Now, you may be wondering, who is this man? Who is this man with this drawn sword that just appeared and said, I'm commander of the army of the Lord? Uh, there's a lot of, <clears throat> there's the number of differences of opinion throughout church history on, on who the identity of this man was, but I think that the most obvious conclusion is that this is what we call a Christophany, that it was an appearance of the Son of God prior to his incarnation in uh, the little town of Bethlehem. For one thing, he didn't stop Joshua from worshiping him. So when Joshua fell on his face and worshiped him, he didn't say, no, don't do that. I am fellow creature such as yourself, as we see sometimes throughout Scripture. And then his first statement to Joshua, after identifying himself, is take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. Now, you'll know, you'll remember that that's exactly what Moses experienced when he saw God through the burning bush in the wilderness of Sinai, God said, take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy. So in both cases, what we're seeing is a visible manifestation of God himself. And that made that place, therefore, holy ground. And that's why I highlighted that command for Joshua, where you are standing is holy. As Israel is preparing for its first battle of the Canaanite conquest, God the Son comes onto the scene to assure Joshua that God is with them and to give him instructions for the fight. Now, the fact that he had a sword drawn indicates that justice is about to be executed. God is judging the people of the land for their iniquity, idolatry, violence, and immorality, <clears throat> excuse me, immorality of all kinds. Now, when Joshua falls down before him and worships, he then submits to his authority, recognizing, okay, your, your army is greater than mine. You know, I'm, I'm answering to you. You're not answering to me. So he says, what is my Lord Say to his servant, what are you here to tell me, Lord? You speak, and I'll do it. Well, after the Lord appears to Joshua, the Lord then leads Israel to victory over Jericho. The first thing that he does after asking what I should do, of course, is the commander tells him to take off his shoes. But then 
the Lord gives him further instructions. So look at verses 1 through 7 with me. Chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, and this is the commander of the Lord's army speaking to him, and again showing that this is a divine being because it says the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of, the, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. So Joshua, excuse me, Jericho is in lockdown right now. Nobody's getting out, nobody's coming in, because they know that the army of Israel is waiting and formulating their plans to attack. So they close the gates and, and no one goes in or out. <clears throat> and then the Lord gives this weirdly unorthodox method for uh, starting the battle. So you guys all know the story, but I'll cover it again. So he says, all right, here's what I want you to do. You take the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of my presence with your people, the place where I do manifest my presence each year on the Day of Atonement. I want you to take that and you put in front of it seven priests with horns, ram's horns that blow like trumpets. And then you and the army, you march around the city one time each day. city was probably a mile or two in circumference, so that was uh, certainly doable. You march around at one time each day, and then you go home. So you can imagine by day three, four, five that the army and possibly the priests as well are going, okay, is this really getting us anywhere? <laughs> they're, not, they're not fleeing the city. We're just, we're just walking around. We're not practicing our fighting. And then God said on the seventh day, what you're going to do is march around it seven times, and then the walls are going to come down. He didn't instruct Israel to catapult boulders against the rocks he didn't excuse me against the walls he didn't instruct him to start digging at the foundation of the walls he just said march you just march you blow the trumpets and on that seventh day on that seventh circuit when you finish and you hear the trumpets blowing you shout and i'm going to bring the walls down one thing that god is teaching israel is that the key to victory is the presence of god because israel knows that Nothing they're doing has a direct connection with the defeat of Jericho. There is nothing that they're doing naturally that will lead to Jericho falling before them. They had to trust completely that it was in God's hands and that it was going to be by God's power. So after doing that for six days, and again, I want to point out this generation of Israelites is obedient. Time and again, when God instructs them to do something, they immediately follow, and we don't even hear any record of complaining or grousing or protesting as we did throughout the wilderness wanderings. So this generation continues to demonstrate that they are indeed circumcised in heart, and they do love the Lord their God and desire to obey Him. 
So now they've marched around six times. They know the next day is the big one. We've got to march around the city seven times, and we're going to shout, and God is going to bring this wall down. So look at verses 15 to 18 with me. Excuse me, 15 to 21. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day because they got a lot of walking to do. And they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So here it is, verse 20. This is the climax of the battle of Jericho. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, we have heard this story so many times. I would estimate, you guys know because I like talking about my age, I am about to turn 50, and I would estimate that I have heard this story at least 300 times in my life, possibly more. So we all know the story. They marched around Jericho. The walls fell down. Man, that's pretty cool. It's great for a coloring book to give to the kids in Sunday school. But think, think for a minute and try to picture the reality of what was happening because this is a historical event. This is not just a parable that someone created to try to illustrate the power of God. The only reason that this story means anything is because it historically happened in real time. People marched around this city and the wall of this city, this massive, massive wall, simply crumbled by God's power. Think of how amazing that would be. They didn't, as I mentioned, they didn't dig into the foundations of the wall. They weren't throwing rocks against the wall. They did absolutely nothing physically to affect this wall. And God brought the wall down to give them victory over Jericho. Now it may be that God caused an earthquake at, earthquake at exactly that time that caused the walls to crumble. That is certainly a possibility. It doesn't mention that, but we don't know what mechanism that God used. However he did it, though, God destroyed Jericho's primary defense. God destroyed Jericho's primary defense against the army of Israel. And the people of Jericho, as you know, were already scared of Israel. So now they see God bring down these walls and, of course, the army rushing in. I'm sure they lost all sense of, of order and courage and were just put to flight and, of course, destroyed very quickly because they were in a full-blown panic. It was a terrifying reminder that they were not just fighting Israel, but they were fighting the God of Israel, who is mighty, mightier than their own gods. Just as the God of Israel had miraculously stopped the Jordan River for his people to cross over, now God knocks down a 50-foot-tall wall for them. The people of Jericho know they're defeated, and with the walls having fallen flat, Israel is then able to rush in, of course, and fully defeat and conquer it. Now, what was Israel ordered to do? Look at verses 17 and 21 again. 
Verse 17, Joshua said, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And then verse 21 says what they did. They devoted all the city, all in the city, to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, I was hoping to encounter this at some point in the book anyway, and and I forgot that it was going to come so quickly. But in addition to struggling over the years, people thinking about these numbers that are mentioned in the book of uh, book of Numbers and then actually what happened in Joshua and Judges, the bigger issue that people run into is how could the God that we know, the God most perfectly manifested in the life of Jesus Christ, how can this God have ordered them to slaughter women and children and the elderly? I mean, I can understand oxen and sheep and donkeys Nobody likes those animals anyway. I'm kidding. <laughs> but when you imagine, I'm sorry, I'm talking about something deep and serious here, and I'm, and I'm making light of it. I'm probably nervous to go into it. Can you imagine what the heart of those Israelites would have felt when they were being ordered? Look, you kill everybody in that city, young and old, men and women. It doesn't matter. How do we square that with the God that we know, this God whom John says is love? God is love. While some students of the Bible believe that the order to devote all that is in the city to destruction is is hyperbole. In other words, it's intentional exaggeration to emphasize that Israel was supposed to completely defeat Jericho. And those who take this viewpoint point out that hyperbole is used elsewhere in Joshua. For instance, in Joshua 10, it says that Joshua struck the whole land... And left none remaining and devoted, dis- devoted to destruction all that breathed. Whereas we know from the rest of the book of Joshua as well as the book of Judges that there were lots of Canaanites still in the land. Breathing, living. As a matter of fact, for the following centuries they were constantly a snare to Israel spiritually. So it is possible that verse 21 is intended merely to say that they're supposed to kill all the combatants. Anyone who opposes them. <clears throat> excuse me, And make sure that they drive out everyone else not that they should literally kill every every everything that breathes in the city <clears throat> pardon me that is one possibility now another possibility is that god is indeed saying to kill everyone who remained in the city but not ordering them to therefore go into the highways and byways and woods and track down all the women children and elderly that were fleeing and kill them I think that that's the more likely. I, I do think that God was ordering them to kill whoever they encountered. And there, there are reasons for that I'll, I'll get into in just a minute. But I don't think, again, from the rest of the book of Joshua as well as Judges, that they literally made sure that there was no one breathing that was a part of Jericho, that they tracked down all the men, women, and children and destroyed them. Whichever stance you take, though, we have to recognize that God does have authority all of all of our lives. And it does sound horribly cruel to order the death of women and children, but recall that God actually promised the same thing to the nation of Israel. So again, this is not a, we're going to destroy them because they are not of the pure, pure breed of Israel. It is a, an execution of justice on these people for their iniquity. For instance, in Leviticus 26, God told the people of Israel, if you turn away from me, you shall be struck down by your enemies. I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. I will unsheath the sword 
after you. And as, of course, you know, Israel did that. Israel apostatized. They turned away from the living God to worship idols, and God used the armies of Assyria and the armies of Babylon to destroy and to kill men, women, and children, young and old. So because of the way that God executed judgment on Israel, I lean toward regarding this as a literal order to kill men and women, young and old, uh, saying exactly what it seems to say, but I do still say that it cannot have meant that every living thing, that, that every person that breathed in the nation, I'll circle back. I don't think that every living being was killed in Jericho. I think there were a number of them that fled and that God was not ordering them to track them down and destroy them. Destroy them. Now, that may not make anybody feel better, including myself, <laughs> but I did want you at least to be thinking about the issue because this is something that we have to face in Scripture, God's justice and not just God's love. All of that is part of the same being. And recall again that... Sometimes we contrast the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. You know, boy, that Old Testament God, he, he was just, you know, always angry and trying to destroy people. And then you get Jesus, tender, meek, and mild, and we love him. But Jesus is God also, okay? Yahweh is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't as if Jesus was sitting off on the sideline going, man, I don't really like how cruel this is going. I'm going to come down there and do it better. <clears throat> Okay, so God led Jericho, excuse me, God led Israel to victory over Jericho. And then, just so we pick up one little thread that was remaining from an earlier chapter, they make sure to point out that Israel rescues Rahab and her family. You'll recall that when the two spies were sent from Israel to scout out Jericho, they stayed at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And this woman, like all of the people of Jericho, had heard about the mighty things that God had done, and she was fearful. But in her fear, she then turned to throw herself on the mercy of the one true and living God. And she chose to protect the spies from being captured from the king of, excuse me, captured by the king of Jericho. And she chose to put her trust in the true and living God. The spies guaranteed her that when they attacked Jericho, that she would be safe as long as she and all of her family stayed inside her house during the attack. So, let's look at how that was fulfilled. That's verses 22 to 25. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And in this wonderful postscript, the author adds, And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So uh, in order, in in a really neat fulfillment of that earlier promise, Joshua actually ordered the two spies to go and rescue Rahab and her family to make good on their promise. And they did that. They led her and her family safely out of the city. And so the promise that was made to Rahab was fulfilled because of her trust in the one true God, Yahweh. She was rescued from the destruction of God's enemies. And by the way, this is another point to consider in Israel's destruction of the people of Jericho. Everyone in Jericho had the same opportunity that Rahab did. They could have appealed to God for mercy. 
and basically surrendered themselves to his army, and they would not have been destroyed. They would have been rescued alive just as Rahab and her family. She and her family were initially placed outside the camp of Israel since, of course, they were not yet ceremonially clean, but uh, Rahab continued to abide with Israel, and as you know, she later became an ancestor of Christ himself, having married an Israelite man. Rahab's story shows that God has, has mercy even in the midst of his judgment. Rahab and her family deserved destruction and death just as much as everyone else in Jericho. They had, like everyone else in Jericho, spent their entire lives in the debased, disgusting worship of other gods in open rebellion against the one true and living God. But God in his mighty acts moved her to put her trust in him. And as you know, God saves all who trust in him regardless of their background. The story closes this way with Joshua, Joshua prophesying a curse. After the battle was over, Joshua was moved by the Spirit of God to prophesy about Jericho. It says Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, speaking of the people of Jericho, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now the prophecy, <clears throat> excuse me, the prophecy that Joshua was given was that whoever decided to rebuild this monument of rebellion, this, this picture that God is using of his enemies, whoever chose to rebuild that would suffer the death of their firstborn son and their youngest son. And 1 Kings 16 says that that prophecy was literally fulfilled hundreds of years ago. I think the reason that God gave that prophecy is because he's pointing out that he wants to use Jericho as a picture, as an example to us. This is what it looks like to oppose the living God. This is the end of all enemies of God. It is destruction and defeat. And he was demonstrating that he was with Joshua and using Joshua as his spokesman by giving him this prophecy. That's why the prophecy is followed by that summary statement, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Now, there are a number of truths that we can draw from this passage. As I mentioned earlier, that God shows mercy to all who come to him. That all who oppose God will end up in destruction. But I think that uh, the main one that I want to concentrate on, excuse me, is that the Lord God is the one who gives victory to his people. It is God who gave the battle strategy that they re they required that they trust in his power to overcome Jericho. It is God who gave them, excuse me, it is God who brought down the wall of Jericho and gave Israel the courage to fight, as well as putting the fear of Israel in the heart of the people of Jericho. And for you and I, new covenant believers, we can take that and apply it directly to the ministry of Christ to say that Christ Jesus will lead his people to victory. Author Roger Ellsworth observes that God's instructions for Israel show us that God delights in using strange methods to accomplish great things. And the greatest example of that is that God used a Jewish rabbi's death on a Roman cross to purchase eternal salvation for sinners. Jesus has already won the greatest victory in history. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he's defeated death, hell, and the grave. And if you put your trust in him, you are already enjoying some of the spoils of that victory. So it is completely true to say, actually, that Jesus has won the victory for his people. 
But I think we all realize that we aren't in full possession of the victory that Christ has purchased just yet. One day when this present age draws to a close, you and I will be given glorified bodies that are perfect. We'll enjoy a life of perfect peace and perfect fellowship with the triune God. And you can be sure that the Lord Jesus Christ will lead you to that victory. But the question that comes to my mind is, what about today? What about my struggle with sin today? What about my sickness today? What about my broken relationships today? What about my unemployment today? What about my despair, depression, or anxiety today? How does Jesus give victory to me today? Okay, I can look forward to the end of my life, full and total victory, but what about right now? And part of the answer to that is exactly what I've said before. You do have the victory, the victory of being delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God. You have the victory of forgiveness and cleansing and adoption. You have the victory of free access to God as a childlike, excuse me, as a well-beloved child. You have the victory of the love of God that he has put in your heart. The victory that Christ Jesus has brought and is continuing to bring in your life doesn't guarantee good health. It doesn't guarantee a good job. It doesn't guarantee that every relationship will be healed. In the book, A Pilgrim's Guide to Rest, it says this about victory. Victory in the Christian life does not look like the victory of men. It is a victory similar to that of the cross. It isn't the expectation that we will one day get clear of our earthly struggles. Victory for the Christian is the exact opposite. The absence of personal confidence and constant struggling. Victory comes when our personal powers are completely defeated and we throw ourselves entirely on the power of God. When, he, when we are reduced to a childlike trust in the promises of God and when everything we trust, power, wealth, influence, status, possessions, is stripped away. If you are struggling this morning, if you are hurting this morning, if you are confused or angry, take that to your God. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the victories that he has won for us is that the door of grace is wide open and we can approach the throne with confidence to find help in our time of need. Tell him everything. Spill your guts to him. Ask him to help you to trust him, to believe in him. Ask him to help you to put aside everything else that you're believing in, everything else that you're relying on for, for not competence. It starts with a C. Forget it. Uh, comfort. Sure, we'll go with that. That's good. Thank you. Uh, everything else that you're relying on for peace, everything else that you're relying on for contentment. I knew it was there. <laughs> Ask him to help you put all of that aside and trust completely in him regardless of the fire that you may be walking through. But let me say also that that is one of the glorious reasons that the body of Christ exists. If you are one of these people, angry, confused, scared, hurting, going through whatever trial, we, the body of Christ, are here for you. We want to stand beside you. We want to help you in any way we can to walk with you through this difficult life that God may have placed upon you. So the victory that the Lord Jesus brings has already begun if you have trusted in him and he is continuing that victory until the end of your life when you will experience its fulfillment. If you haven't trusted Christ, I plead with you, I urge you to trust him today. One of the promises that he gives you is that if anyone comes to me, I will never cast him out. So that's why I can say confidently 
that even if Rahab's king had said, I'm going to turn to the living God and ask for mercy, that God would have had mercy on him and would not have destroyed him. So regardless of what your past looks like, regardless of what you have been through, I guarantee you, I promise you that Christ Jesus will receive you and give you salvation that is full, fair, and free and bring you into his family forever. Amen and amen. I've come up with a few ways that you can respond to this message. I just want to focus on one of them. You'll see two or three up there and in your sermon notes. Encouraging a struggling believer with the truth of Christ's victory. Now, I mentioned last week a way that you can encourage someone by praying for them. And I told you, don't necessarily talk to them. Because in so many situations, you guys all know this. This is part of the reason that there's so much hurt in churches. So often when we go to a brother or sister in Christ, we come with a sense of superiority or a sense of condemnation. At least that's how that's often received. So come with a sense of humility and a sense of love offering to encourage someone. In other words, when I say encourage them with Christ's victory, don't say, man, you shouldn't be depressed. Did you know Jesus died on the cross for you? That doesn't make your depression disappear, does it? It doesn't make your job up here that you need. What I'm saying is, is encouraging them by reminding them that the Lord Jesus Christ loves them so much that he poured out his blood for them. That the Lord Jesus Christ promised to be with them forever. That the Spirit of God will witness to their spirit that they are beloved children of God. That's the kind of encouragement that I'm urging you to this morning. So as we stand in prayer, let me just remind you of this fact once, once again, this truth. Christ Jesus will lead his people to victory. Let's stand. After I pray, there are going to be some people up here across the front of the stage that are ready and willing to stand with you in prayer to encourage you in any way they can. So let me urge you, if you have walked in here under a burden, please do not leave without that burden having been shared with another believer. Or if you're not a believer, please don't leave without talking to a believer about how you can know this great and wonderful Savior that we've all experienced. Let's go to him now. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who overcame everything, whose victory is complete and total, who can never be defeated, whose victory can never be taken away from, in his name we come to you, Lord. And we give you praise and we give you glory for showing us again your power as we were reminded of what you did supernaturally in the city of Jericho to give the people of Israel their victory. And thank you, Lord God, for this reminder of your great mercy. Even in the midst of this violent and horrific judgment, you still extended a hand of mercy to Rahab and her family. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would minister to every believer in here this morning. Minister to them this reminder of your greatness and your love and your faithfulness. Strengthen their faith in you, Lord, as they walk through whatever trials they're facing. And Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that your spirit would communicate the greatness and glory of Christ, communicate the gospel of Christ, that he has died for them and risen from the dead and offers life and salvation to all who come to him. Father, give us a special measure of grace for our gathering this morning. Thank you. Amen.